Church family, we'll be in Matthew 26, verse 30, so you can feel free to go ahead and turn there. Our brother Logan read that so well, and we'll definitely read it again. We're going to hug that text, so you're going to want a Bible open. That'll be helpful. My name is Kyle Backus. I have the privilege of serving on staff here as our student minister, so that means I get to hang out with our sixth graders all the way up to 12 and get to know their families, and it's a lot of fun. It's such a great privilege. If I don't know you, I'd love to know you. And, you know, Pastor Wayne did make it known I did have COVID. I don't anymore, okay? Um, So if I don't know you, please come up afterwards. I would love to know you. And if I know you, I'm a hugger, and you would know that about me. So I would like to hug and, you know, just say hi again. Because sometimes being away for a week after you're, like, used to being here six out of seven days in the week, what it feels like feels like a longer time, you know. So um, definitely would love to know you. But... There's a question that our passage is going to bring up this morning. So Matthew 26, 30 to 46 is going to bring up a question that we all will answer. And I'm confident that we will answer it either while we're here living on earth or even at the end of our lives. Here's the question that our passage is going to bring up. It's who can stand before God and be considered innocent? It's a question that we will see answered in our text And there's a glorious answer filled with lots of hope. So I know that might sound like a really intimidating question. Take a breath with me, okay? There's a really comforting answer. There's there's an answer that's filled with hope that's found in the name of Jesus. But it's a question that we ask because when we consider what would it look like to stand before the Lord face to face and him see me as innocent, him see me as righteous, I think in our world, there's different ways that we may answer that question. There's some that would answer that by saying, it's those who have tried to be a good person. Some may say, it's those who have tried to just be really happy and be grateful for things. It's those who have said, man, I've tried my hardest with all of my effort to follow what I think God is asking me to do. And there's, maybe there's even some who would say, well, we're all going to be considered innocent, right? Every human, we're, we're all loved by God, we'll all be considered innocent, and While it is true we are loved by God, our passage makes it clear today that there's one answer that's going to help us determine if that'll be our reality. If we can be confident that we'll stand face to face with the Lord and him say, I see you the way that I see my son Jesus. And that's righteous and that is loved. Church family, that can be your reality, but that happens through admitting who Christ is and who we really are. We see our need for the gospel in our passage today and seeing our need through the gospel, we see we can't trust in ourselves. We can't trust in our own abilities to be right with God. We can't trust in our greatest efforts because if you're like me, you know that they'll fall short. It's not about us, but it is about Jesus. And Jesus is the one who can secure that future for us, who can give us that confidence that, yes, we will stand before the Lord one day. And he will say, I see you like I see my son, Jesus. That's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. And really, that's going to be wrapped up in this main point that we have. So if there's anything you walk away with this morning, this is a good thing to walk away with. What we're going to really see in our passage is that Jesus willingly takes the wrath of God upon himself to pay for our sins and he gives life to those who will acknowledge that they don't deserve it. That's what we're after this morning, church family, and we're so excited for us. If you would, come back to the text. We're gonna read it again. We said we're gonna hug it. That's true. The word of God is our hope. It's our source of truth, and we wanna make sure that we proclaim it. And that's my heart to proclaim that this morning. So we'll start in verse 30. We'll read to verse 46. 
It says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Even to the point of death, he says here in verse 38, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See that the hour is at hand and that the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Our passage starts this morning with Jesus teaching the disciples and by extension us this morning of his Father's will. There's two big observations we have. That's our first one and that's what we're gonna see here in our passage is that Jesus, he graciously teaches the disciples and teaches us about his Father's will. In verse 30, Jesus and the disciples, they're moving from the upper room, right? And Pastor Kurt impacted this so well last week. They're being told the body of Jesus will be broken. His blood will be poured out. A few verses before, verse 30 says, for the forgiveness of sins. They've heard what God is up to and what he's accomplishing in Jesus for sinners, aka the salvation that's made available to people like me and you. They've heard this and they move now to the Mount of Olives and it says that they begin to worship together. They sing a hymn and I had to make this point. Pastor Kurt was actually supposed to preach this verse last week. But he was like, hey, I'm good. <laughs> okay, he said, he said, I'm good, you got it, dude. And I said, hey, I'm happy to do that. Verse 30, though, is pretty astonishing when you think of verse 31 and 32, that just a few moments after the disciples are alongside of Jesus singing with him, more than likely what they would be singing at this point is from Psalm 113, the Psalm 118, that was accustomed to do around the time of the Passover. Just a few moments after, can you imagine how amazing that would be? to worship alongside of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And just a few moments later, he says, but you will fall away because of me this night. So he's saying, you will fall away. You will not be ready. Your heart and the condition of your heart will not be ready to receive what's happening right in front of your eyes. There's gonna come a moment where I'm gonna be delivered over to death and you won't stand with me. And just to be clear this morning, because there's different ideas that we have. But what the text is saying when it says fall away is that the disciples were not 
going to be ready and their hearts would not be ready to give the worship that is due to Jesus for what he is telling them in the gospel. They weren't ready. So this is a call to repentance and it's based all in the grace of God. What Jesus is doing here is it's not a gotcha moment. We might read this and be like, man, he got him. No, that's not what he's doing, church family. He's saying, I wanna warn you. I wanna make sure that your heart is taken from a place of apathy, from a place of self-confidence, from a place of trusting in self, from a place of trusting in your own abilities to trusting in me. And Jesus says the way that happens is through you knowing, believing, and adoring the, the Father's will. Jesus is teaching the Father's will through our first few verses in this passage. And a question that probably came to your mind as I said that is, what is God's will then, right? That's a question that we spend a lot of time asking. Many may ask, what's God's will for my family? Where does God want us to live? What does God want me to do for a job? What will my degree amount to? What is God's will for the person I should date? Which that's probably not as willing, okay, or probably not as worthy of a question to ask, you know. You can move on from that one. But there's a lot of ways that we can ask this question. Sometimes, I think, in a really honorable way and sometimes where maybe we have ourselves in mind. We, we may ask the question, what is God's will? And Jesus teaches it to us in verse 31 and 32. If you look at those verses with me, Jesus quotes Zechariah 13, 7. And whenever we see Jesus take parts of the Old Testament and bring it to where he is now, where the disciples are now, he's teaching us something. He's saying this isn't just an idea that we came up with. It's not just something that's happening in the moment. This is what God has desired would happen. And God's a faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping God. So what he says he's gonna do in the Old Testament, we see it fulfilled and happened in Christ. So we read this once again, this is wrapped up in grace that Jesus would quote Zechariah 13, seven, but Zechariah 13, seven has some pretty incredible claims starting with in verse 31, Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd. Now it's important for us to consider who is Jesus quoting? He is quoting God. He is quoting his father's words from Zechariah 13, seven. So Jesus is saying, God will strike the shepherd. The shepherd now being who? Jesus. That in Zechariah 13, seven, there would be the shepherd struck by God. And what that really comes down to is that the son would die and God knew exactly that that would happen. Pastor Wayne said this during his prayer, and I love this. He, God wasn't surprised by this, nor was Jesus. This is right along with God's will. And this idea of the shepherd being struck, of the son having to die, it comes from Isaiah 53. We're gonna have it on the screens and would invite you to read along with us. But verses four to six of Isaiah 53 tell us what the death of Jesus will be like. So when Zechariah 13, seven says, the son will be struck, AKA the son will die. Verses four to six tell us what would Jesus' death be like? What promise did he make and what promise will he keep now that we see here in Matthew 26? And then verses 10 to 11 that we'll read in a second tell us about what God's will and God's greatest desire. When we say God's will, we say, what is God's greatest desire? What is God's purpose? What is God up to? We see that in these verses. So Isaiah 53 verse four, it starts by saying, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In this verse six, in a second, will bring us to the second part of Zechariah 13, seven. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the good news of the gospel, the Lord has laid on who? Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. And like we said, verse 10 to 11, that's what the death of Jesus would be like. And that's good news if you're like me and you know that you fall short. And you know that you've fallen short and you know that you can admit, man, I can't do this righteousness thing and I can't do this perfection thing on my own. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that God's desire and God's will was that. Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquity. So as we talk about the will of God, what is God's will according to Zechariah 13, 7? It starts with the truth that Jesus goes and will stand on a place on the cross for the sins of me and you. That is God's will, that Jesus will do that, that he would die and pay for sin. And in this moment, we see God willed it. God desired it. So if we bring this back to me and to you, what what is God's will? Well, first, it's that we would know of his death and we would believe in his death. And this gets practical because if we really hold on to the death of Jesus for what it's worth and what it is, it changes every part of us. When we can read the passage and see that Jesus is willingly saying, hey, I will die for you, grabs a hold of our heart and our life in every way. And it's especially powerful considering the second half of Zechariah 13, 7, where Jesus quotes and says, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And in this passage, these are the disciples that were told you will fall away because of me this night. But if we come back to Isaiah 53, it tells us what? That we have all been like the who? The sheep who have gone astray. We are prone to go our own way. We are prone to trust in ourselves. So the Father, he is revealing his will. Jesus is revealing his Father's will by saying, believe and trust in my death, but also don't trust in yourself. There's no hope there. There's no power there. And where does the idea of hope come up? It comes up in verse 32. So Jesus is doubling down. Not only will I die for you, but verse 32 comes with a promise. He says, after I am raised up in verse 32, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus, not only making this promise about I will die for you, I will lay down my life so that you can be forgiven, even though we know that you have gone astray. I know that I've gone astray. Jesus says, not only that, but the grave will not hold me down. Three days later, like we sung, I'm so happy we sung those songs. I texted Kurt last night. Little did he know I was crying when I texted him because I was like, these songs are fire, okay? (laughs) I mean, we sing about the resurrection, but we're seeing the resurrection in verse 32. Jesus makes this glorious promise. Not only will I die for you, but I will raise again from the grave three days later. And this is especially powerful when we consider what happens in verses 33 to 35. Jesus begins to say, you will fall away because of me this night, a.k.a. I I know you're going to fall short. Hey, I know that you're going to be unfaithful to me. I know that you will not measure up to a perfect standard 
of righteousness. Now, at that moment, we can stop and think, man, is that a story without hope? Is that a reality of my life without any hope that's ahead of me? The good news of the gospel is that there is hope. (laughs) That is not your story, and that is not your reality when you trust in the death of Jesus that pays for sin and the glorious, victorious resurrection that defeats sin and death forever. Nothing can ever challenge Jesus again. He reigns and rules over the world. And here's the key, church family. Despite my unfaithfulness and despite yours, this is exactly what he does. He secures our redemption. Romans 5, 8. Even yet while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Even yet, in this passage, when the disciples, and they say, I would never fall away from you. I, I would die with you, Jesus. We may snark at that, right? We might think, how could they? But if we want to be honest, we're a little bit more like Peter than we may want to admit. And it's something I need to admit. <laughs> I'm more like Peter than I want to admit a lot of the time. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that without a heart that's set on trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, by our own nature and by my own nature, I will trust in myself and you probably will too. We're, we're prone by our sin to look at ourselves and think, I can do it. I can do it on my own. I can be good enough. I can, I can measure up. I can be good. I, I can love people fully. But our own faithfulness, our own unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of the disciples shows us we have to be honest about ourselves. We have to be honest about who we really are. And that's where verse 41 comes into play. Verse 41, Jesus gives this warning like we prayed in our corporate prayer. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation for the spirit indeed is willing. So Jesus is saying, hey, I understand you may want to do this, but the flesh is weak. It's Jesus saying, Peter, James, John, disciples, I understand you're gonna fall short. I'm not shocked by that. I understand you're gonna stumble along the way. I'm not shocked by that. He says, what I'm actually doing is grabbing a hold of your heart so that you'll believe in what's ahead in my death and my resurrection. Church family, that's what Jesus is doing this morning as well. He understands the, he understands the sinner. He understands the sufferer. He understands the one who longs to be face-to-face with God, and he says, that can happen when you believe and trust in Jesus. Church family, if you're here this morning, you're thinking, I don't know if there's any hope for my life. I I don't know if I can answer the question confidently that I would stand face-to-face with God and be counted righteous. There's good news. It's not because of your effort. (laughs) It's not because of my effort. It's not because of what we can do and what we can't do. It's because of what Jesus Christ has already done. It is available, church family, and it's available through what? Verse 32, the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection is at the center of what we believe as followers of Jesus, that we truly believe that verse 32 is true. It matters so much that 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says this. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And our faith is in vain. So what that really means is if verse 32 is not true, then what we're doing right now doesn't matter. And that's a question we have to hold on to. Maybe if you're a skeptic in the room, does this really matter? I promise you it matters and I promise you it's true. And we can hold on to this and have hope despite our own unfaithfulness because verse 32 is true. 
Jesus has risen from the grave. He's defeated sin forever. What are we asked to do? We're asked to trust in that. We're asked to lay down our lives, lay down our self-trust that we saw Peter fall into, lay down our self-righteousness that says, you know what, my own efforts can do it. Lay down the thought of there's some way I can just please God on my own. Church family, we're told the way that it happens is through trusting in Jesus because Jesus perfectly pleases the Father. Jesus perfectly pleases the Father and when he stands in our place, we then are seeing how God sees Jesus. You hear that again? That's good news. Because of what Jesus has done, God looks at those who have repented of sin and placed their faith in him and says, you trust and believe in my death and my resurrection, my Father's will, you will be seen the way that I see Jesus. Isn't that pretty crazy? That's the promise of the gospel and that happens through being, count, right, being counted righteous. And we'll talk about that in a second when we look at the obedience of Jesus in the garden. But before we get there, a helpful question for us this morning is to ask, I think, two questions. First, are we really honest about who we really are? Apart from Jesus, can we be honest and admit who we really are according to what the Word of God has told us? We're those who will stumble, we're those who will fall into unfaithfulness, and we're those who will fall into sin. But the good news of the gospel is that doesn't have to be your story. That doesn't have to be the way that you are labeled when you stand before God. That his death and his resurrection secures your future, secures your redemption but it starts with saying, I've seen who Jesus is. I've seen Jesus in his perfection and in his death. But I've got to be also really honest and admit, who am I? Dane Ortland, he's an author who wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, now a book called Deeper, both awesome books. He says it's healthy for every disciple to have a healthy dose of self-despair. I want to say that again. He says it's healthy for every disciple to have a healthy dose of self-despair. What does he mean by that? Does he mean we just rip ourselves apart and live in shame because of our sin? That's not what he's saying, and I hope that's not what you're hearing. What he's saying is when we have a proper dose of self-despair, a healthy dose of self-despair, we get brought low, and Jesus gets brought really high. We get humbled, and Jesus gets exalted. That is so important for us because it takes us away from self-trust, self-righteousness, and ultimately that thing that we're prone to, like we can admit with one another, man, I, I can do this on my own. I can trust in myself. And, you know, I can admit and I can acknowledge church family. I know that the message don't trust in yourself is like the least popular thing, okay, to declare and to see here in the word by our world standards. But the truth is it's exactly the message we need to hear. We can't trust in ourselves because we'll let ourselves down. We can't trust in ourselves because we won't have the power to stay free from sin on our own. But the big message of the gospel, Jesus has done it, church family. We trust in Jesus, we don't trust in ourselves. And then by extension, our hope, our hope is secured. And that brings us to our second question, is just to consider where are we finding our hope? Here at the start of 2022, maybe if you survey the last few months of your life, what would you honestly say, I place my hope in this. What does that really mean? My joy and my satisfaction comes through the fulfillment of this thing. It's possible for us to hope and to say, you know what, things will just be right and my life will just be really happy if I get that job promotion. 
Hey, things will be right if I can just finally pay off my debt that I've been under for my whole life, ever since I graduated college. That's real. Um, <laughs> hey, things will be better. My hope can be delivered when my children begin behaving better. And I'm not talking about anyone on the third floor. Okay, they're all angels. But the reality is, and we can survey our hearts and know we're not only prone to trust in the wrong things, I think we're also prone to hope in the wrong things. The resurrection challenges us. Where are we placing our hope, church family? There are two questions for us to ask this morning. But as Jesus has taught us of his Father's will, now we move on to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is just a few moments before. And in fact, our passage ends with Jesus being betrayed and delivered over to death. And now we move to the Garden of Gethsemane. In this moment, what we're really seeing, so we just saw, hey, the Father's will is that Jesus will die and pay for sin and raise again from the grave to give those who would place their faith in him an eternal hope, a hope that lays in heaven. But the Garden of Gethsemane teaches us why, and this is so important, why Jesus is able to do it. The Garden of Gethsemane shows us that Jesus is the one perfect, righteous, willing Savior. This brings us to our second observation, that Jesus drinks the cup that we deserve. We talked about this, that Jesus instructs his disciples, sit here and pray and come along with me. He takes Peter, James, and John, says, hey, you guys pray too, don't fall asleep, stay awake. But we saw in our passage, three different times, what happens? The disciples fall asleep. I think we can relate with that. We can relate with that, that, man, we we tried as hard as we could, or maybe it's not even an effort of trying, but maybe it's, I just don't even know if my heart's in the place to care. Whatever it might be, we can relate that we stumble, like we've said. And three different times that happened in this passage. But as we see the disobedience of the disciples, there's a contrast given to us, right? What does that mean? There's two things we see laid side by side. First, we've talked about it, the, the disobedience of the disciples. But here's the good news, church family. We also see the obedience of Jesus, Like we talked about, when we're honest about who we are and we can be brought low, Jesus is brought really high. And these verses exalt Jesus because he is the perfect, willing, obedient Savior. Verses 37 to 39 tells us that Jesus began to feel sorrowful and troubled even to the point of death. And his reaction is to pray. His reaction is to fall on his knees and pray because of the intense amount of sorrow and agony. Where is the sorrow and agony coming from? It's from the knowledge that he has of what he's about to do for you and me. This is our savior. Look at his love. Look at his grace that he experiences agony over the sins of the world. Moments before it happens, and this is even yet still while the disciples were in unfaithfulness. This is what Jesus is committed to, committed to it so much he experiences this agony and sorrow and it leads us to pray. And as an important, I think important but quick side note, may the same be true for us that our seasons of suffering, of agony, of sorrow, even just the longing to be delivered, as we see in the word, puts it from this body of sin, from this life that seems broken, you can count on the fact that God hears you. He hears your prayers because he hears his son. He's present in this moment of agony in church family. You can trust You may not believe it, but I pray that you would trust and believe that God is with you in your suffering. He's present and he hears you as you cry out to them. As Jesus prays, 
He prays in verse 39. He says, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he brings up the idea of a cup. And then verse 42, he doesn't, say, he doesn't say, oh, again, if this cup could pass. But verse 42, he says, I know the cup cannot pass. It means I know that I will need to take and drink this cup. And in, in this prayer in verse 42, we see a powerful prayer even for us, church. May this be our prayer. He says, Lord, not my will be done, but what? Yours. What a powerful prayer to wrap our life around in 2022, church family. Lord, not my will, not my desires, but yours be done. The cup, Jesus brings this idea of the cup. It comes from Psalm 75, 8. This is a really important passage for us. The verse says, there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. That word dregs, I know it's a funny word. I had to look it up, but it's really good news. It means to the very last drop. So hold on to that, okay? Hold on to that because I'm not gonna act like I'm smarter than you and that I didn't know what that word meant. But what it means is poured out to the very last drop. So hold on to that. But what's being said here is because God is a just God, a righteous God, meaning that he has no sin, could never sin, would never fall into sin. He is perfect in every way. Because that's who God's character is, the result is he has a righteous, righteous hatred and wrath against sin and evil. That's sometimes a picture and a reality that we become uncomfortable with. And the truth is it's good for us to be uncomfortable with that. This is who God is, that he is righteous, that he is just, and that he says that sin must be paid for. The picture we get of this cup, it will be poured out to the very last drop on the wicked, is what we see in Psalm 75, 8. But as we've talked about, this is why Jesus is able to save me and save you. He takes the cup. You and I don't. What does that amount to? It means that when God punishes sin and evil, he is doing it by Jesus' death on the cross. He's laying and pouring out all of his wrath onto Jesus. God's will, church family, is not that you and I would receive the cup. It's that Jesus would. And Jesus is obedient because he takes it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us a rich picture of this. It says, he who knew no sin, you may be familiar with this verse, became sin. We've seen that. But what does that mean for us? That we might become the righteousness of God. How wild is that? Despite our own unfaithfulness, despite our own falling short, Jesus says, by my death and my resurrection, what I've secured for you is my righteousness. Church family, you can be confident that if you believe in this gospel, you'll stand before God one day and he'll look at you and say, I don't see you by your record of sin. I see you by the record of Jesus' righteousness. So we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in Jesus. And I'm so happy we read this verse as our call to worship, but John 10, 18 tells us, as we consider Jesus' role in this, he's not a son with his arm being twisted, right? Sometimes we get this picture of he is just being forced into something that he doesn't really want to do for us. Maybe if that's your view of Jesus, would you reconsider it this morning? John 10, 18 tells us that no one takes it. He's talking about his life. This is crazy. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. What this means for us is that Jesus willingly lays down his life. Not only is he obedient, but he's willing to do what must be done in taking the cup. 
So church family, as you look at Jesus, as you look at your view of Jesus, see a savior who says, I want to die for your sin. I'm not being forced into this. Me and my father are on the same page and I'm doing it so that you can be set free from given, forgiven from sin and be seen as righteous. Jesus willingly lays down his life for our redemption, church family. As we think about the righteousness of Jesus, there are a couple of really important words that we wanna hold on to as we leave this morning. It's righteous, it's willing, it's obedient. We've talked about the perfection of Jesus and his righteousness, he's without sin. He willingly does it. He's not being forced into this church family. He desires to die for sinners. His love for you and for me, despite our own unfaithfulness, leads him to the cross. That is a good and gracious savior. And he's obedient. He's obedient. What does that lead us to in response? It leads us to think and to believe and to know that our righteousness cannot gain God's approval. Church family, maybe you're here and maybe your whole life you felt, I have to please God for him to love me. I've got to find a way to be perfect before Jesus would bring me into his kingdom. I've got to fix all of the things that are really dirty right here before God would love me. That is 100% not the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? That even yet while we were still sinners, God died for us. He knew exactly what he would do in securing our our redemption. And yes, our story with our sin and our unfaithfulness would be Psalm 75, 8. And I must say this, because the word of God says it. It will be your reality if you live a life apart from Jesus. The wickedness that we live will rightfully be punished. But hear the invitation of the gospel, church family. Hear the invitation of the gospel. Your story can be one that is covered and wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus and know that he willingly does this. It changes our picture from a a son who's getting his arm twisted after he just did something really dumb (laughs) to a son who's running towards the cross for the joy that was set before him and for our redemption And knowing what that would mean is that we'd be brought back again into fellowship with God, not separated by our sin, but counted as righteousness with an eternal hope that is set before us. Church family, let's not trust in our unrighteousness and let's see Jesus for who he really is. Because when we do that, yeah, we will see who we really are, but then you know what we go right back to? Who Jesus really is. Remember the picture. We're brought low so that Jesus can be brought what? High. That's a life of exalting Jesus. May that be our story. As we wrap up this morning, as we wrap up this morning, there's a couple thoughts that this passage is sending us with in response. And I'll say this first is the response to realize our constant need for the gospel. To realize our constant need for the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning, you've heard this message, and you've never said, wait, I've never trusted in this Jesus. I've never known this Jesus who has already died on the cross for my sin, rose from the grave so that I can trust and hope in him. I would invite you afterwards, come talk to myself, one of our pastors, one of our ministers, one of our awesome godly members who would be up here and who would love to tell you, hey, trusting in Jesus is worth it. (laughs) He's accomplished it and this salvation is made available. May that be your story this morning if it hasn't been yet. But also for 
the person who said, yeah, I've been following Jesus. I know some of you, this is so cool, for like 60, 70 years, maybe some 20 years, maybe some a couple weeks. Time and time again, we need the gospel. The gospel isn't the doorway into the Christian life. The gospel is the living room that we live in. It's where we stay. It's where we reside so that we can continue to know and grow with Jesus in deeper ways. Like we talked about, let's be honest about who we really are. Can we do that this morning? Can we be honest about who we really are? Because the good news is when we do that, the comfort, the love, and the hope of Jesus meets us right where you are. Jesus is looking to meet you right where you are this morning. Realize your need for him. And our second response, I think this has an immediate part to it in rejoicing in the goodness of God to stand in our place and take the cup. We're gonna sing a song of worship here in response in a second, but it's not just here now as we sit in the worship service. It's life. Your life can be marked by the praise of God if your heart is set on his death and resurrection. That it can be a reality. My my life exists to praise Jesus and I know that he's worthy of praise because he stood in my place He took the cup that was reserved for me that I rightfully deserved. He took it. He didn't deserve it. And he loves me. Church family, we can rejoice in that. And I'll say this morning, if you have a hard time rejoicing in that, grab a brother or sister and confess that. That's what the church is for, that we may be here for one another. I'm having a hard time in believing what I'm being told is the greatest news on earth. It is the greatest news on earth. We can help one another continue to see it. But if you are this morning ready to praise the Lord and rejoice in that truth, let's do just that and not see it as something that's reserved to worship. But it's it's what becomes the rhythm of your life. Church family, we're going to pray together and then we'll respond in singing. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we trust you. And like we've admitted, we need your help in opening our eyes to see that we can't trust in ourselves, that our righteousness won't do it, that our best efforts won't secure secure your love, but the good news of the gospel is you've already freely given it. Lord, would you take our hearts and have them set to this gospel message this morning, and would you help us rejoice? In your name we pray, amen.